The following represents the opinions of the host and guests. The material spoken about may contain topics that are not suitable for children. Topics such as suicide, death, dismemberment, rape, and murder may be detailed. Discretion is advised. Hey, boozers. Hello. I'm Gabe. And I'm Alexis. And today we have a very, very special episode for you today. Yes. And we are actually speaking with someone. And would you like to introduce yourself, Rod, or do you want us to do it for you? Oh, no, I can introduce myself. My name is Rod Sadler, and I am a retired police officer and uh, slash author. Yes. He, if anyone is wanting to read his book. It is called Killing Women, and it is a phenomenal book. I have not read it, but I did get it on Audible, so it's on the list. It definitely is 100% on my list. Yes, I am very excited for it. And today we are going to be giving you the case of Don Miller. Now he is Michigan's notorious serial killer mm-hmm. who was killing women in East Lansing. Yes. So and it, he does have a couple of victims that did survive. So Rod's going to give us the pleasure of talking about them and just kind of really getting into the mind and the details of Don. I was kind of curious what you might be um, uh, having to drink. Um, so I actually have a Mike's hard lemonade. It's called, it's one of their new ones. It's a pink freeze. Okay. And then I have a white claw, a uh, black cherry flavored. Oh. <laughs> Lovely. And what do you have? I have uh, in my Lansing Bourbon Fest glass, I have some uh, really cheap whiskey. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I like cheap whiskey, so well, it's always I'll, good. I'll tell you a funny story. My, my, uh, I gave my dad, I'll make, make this short. I gave my dad a bottle of, uh, Jameson for his 80th birthday and he re-gifted it to me uh, because he doesn't like expensive whiskey he likes the cheap stuff <laughs> so I'm like well I guess I know where I stand I like the cheap stuff too so <laughs> it's you know sometimes it's better to have the cheap stuff sure all right so without further ado let's grab a drink let's get cracking is uh, famous for being East Lansing's uh, serial killer in the mid-70s. He was a graduate of the Michigan State University uh, School of Criminal Justice, which drew my attention to him um, back in 1978 uh, after uh, his arrest, because I was uh, graduating from high school at that point, and I already had my career path chosen. I knew that I was uh, going to Lansing Community College and that my career was going to be in law enforcement. And so when I heard uh, of his arrest uh, and the fact that he was a criminal justice student from Michigan State University, it kind of piqued my interest. And so I followed the case 
along and then um, uh, certainly after he was uh, put away in prison, it was kind of forgotten uh, until much later um, after my retirement and it turned out to be the subject of my third book. And uh, the title is Killing Women. And in that, um, I go into some of Don's background. Don was uh, also a graduate of East Lansing High School. And uh, most of this stuff I, I learned from um, people that were associated with him in some way. And actually some of it from his, from his own father who I became friends with. Um, throughout my uh, process of writing this book. And wow. so um, Don was uh, in the East Lansing High School band. And in a time in the late 70s, and I know I shouldn't ask you young ladies this, um, <laughs> and I probably, and so I won't, but I, I can guarantee you're probably a lot younger than I am. Uh, yeah, yeah. We, I most definitely was not born at all. I was actually born. I was in '94, so and okay. my parents weren't even born until the mid '70s. So, <laughs> oh, okay, all right. Well, so in a time in the in the mid '70s when a lot of kids were wearing uh, tie dye t shirts and bell bottom jeans and sandals and things like that, long hair. Um, Don Miller uh, at East Lansing High School uh, was very straight-laced. Um, many described him as a loner. Uh, he had, uh, every day he would wear uh, dress pants, a white shirt, uh, patent leather belt, patent leather shoes. His hair would be greased back. Uh, and I think he even wore a tie. And uh, he would carry his trombone with him everywhere that he went. And because he was so unnoticeable in that regard as uh, uh, active in student activities and such, that's what made him noticeable. Um, and people thought he was weird. Honestly, they did. Uh, I feel like that is a, a reoccurring theme with um, boys who grow up to be serial killers is they're often noted as weird or odd in high school. Um, I thought it was a little weird that you said it was, he was really like clean and clean cut and stuff like that, because I find that not that I'm a, like an expert on the subject or anything, but we see a lot of um, serial killers who were really kind of, they didn't have great personal hygiene when they were younger. And I, I guess my mind kind of goes to that where now that's kind of like a stereotype in my mind now, because we see it so often. This, yeah, this is, a, um, I think, uh, it, if I were able to go back and, and do some more research, I think that, that I would find that Don Miller's um, upbringing was very uh, stringent. And by that, I mean, when, when the police executed search warrants uh, after his arrest at, at his house or his parents' house where he lived, um, they found weird things like uh, like when they searched a closet, uh, there was a row of, of dress pants, all the same color, and every one of those had uh, this uh, belt in them. So if there was 20 mm -hmm. pairs of pants, there was 20 belts in the pants. Um, and his mom was a nurse. And I think that uh, that his dad and I don't know this to be a fact because his dad, although we became friends, um, was very guarded about what he shared 
with me about Don. And uh, I think that his mom, who was a nurse, was a very um, stringent mother. Uh, I, as a matter of fact, on the, on the evening when um, Martha Sue Young was last seen, his first victim, uh, Don's mother stayed up till 2 a.m. until he got home, sleeping on the couch, uh, mm. waiting for him to get home. So I think that she ran things at least that's my impression. Um, I don't know that to be a fact, but I think that, that for lack of a better term, she wore the pants in the family. Okay. Now okay, his, that makes sense. his dad uh, was very active um, in activities, uh, uh, recreational activities with Don. And he told me that Don and him would go on vacations, that they would go uh, dirt bike riding, uh, I know for a fact that uh, his dad was in a, a comp competitive uh, shooting club. And, and I know that because uh, one of his uh, teammates was the first police officer to respond to the missing person report about uh, Martha Sue Young. And I spoke with him and he said, yeah, Gene and I used to shoot together. Um, and Don would come along um, and he wasn't on the, on the shooting team, but he would come along and uh, so, uh, you know, there was some activities there, but I think that, that, uh, if I was able to go back and, and do more research about his family life, um, I, I would find that, that it was a very stringent household. Uh, I will tell you that, um, there was a, um, let's just say a relationship between, um, Don and one of his sisters. And uh, I asked his dad about that in, in our first interview. I said, uh, Gene, I'm gonna ask you a question. I said, and, and this is gonna be more difficult or as difficult for me to ask it as it is for you to answer. Uh, but there's indications in my research that Don had a sexual relationship with one of his sisters. And Gene got very defensive and, and, and rightfully so. And he said, uh, he said, well, his mother knew about that. I didn't know anything about it. Oh, wow. That's and, very interesting. And that was the end of it. Uh, and then when I followed up on that um, in my research, I learned that uh, that his sister had finally uh, told uh, Mrs. Miller about it and she, and she put a stop to it. So and, was it consensual? That I don't know. Okay. I honestly don't know. And, and I can only guess, you know, um, based on some of the research that I've done into serial killers is that maybe that was a tipping point for him. I was um, just going to say, was this before he started killing that she yeah. told her mother? So that could have been his, his breaking. His, yeah. His stressor that, that was sure. so, okay. Absolutely. And so, uh, so Don, uh, when he graduated from high school, he went to, uh, MSU. Um, he, he had uh, a couple majors that, he changed periodically, uh, and then he finally ended up in the criminal justice program. Now, I think uh, we could all sit here and go, well, why did he pick criminal justice? You know, what was he doing research on how police investigate things? Was he already planning his career as a serial killer? Who knows at this right. point? Who knows? Um, yeah, I find it very ironic how things connect, you know, he wanted to be a police officer and then, you know, his dad 
played golf with someone or not golf, but shot with someone who, you know, had a connection and knew him in these, it's weird how it all like connects, but I know everybody knows everybody pretty much in Lansing. I mean, it's big, but it's not that big. So you, you usually hear about people or know people and have those certain connections to people. So I, yeah, I agree. And then in your, in your professional opinion or in your personal opinion, do you, do you think it's scarier for someone who has like, who becomes a killer or becomes a serial killer to have that background in criminal justice? Do you think that makes it harder for them to be caught? Or do you think it makes it easier for them to get away with what they do? Well, I think uh, certainly they know, uh, I think if they, if they have a background in law enforcement or in criminal justice, uh, they know some things that the average person doesn't know. Um, and over time, uh, if they're a serial killer, I think they will perfect their, um, their expertise, if you will. Uh, and that, as I did my research, um, there was nothing to indicate Don Miller wanted to be a police officer. I, I never saw that. Um, I just know that that he was a graduate of the criminal justice program, an average student, not not someone who was maybe striving for a law enforcement career who was shooting for all A's and B's and things like that. He was just an average Joe. And uh, as a matter of fact, when he was um, doing his killing, his killing spree, he was simply a security guard and he wasn't out applying for jobs as a police officer. I think I saw one job application where he applied as a probation officer or something. Okay. Now I wonder, do you think it could have been something to um, make his mom proud? You know, you, you said that she wore the pants in the household and everything. Do you think it was something that he thought, well, maybe if I, you know, get a job or go into this career or act like I want to go into this career that, you know, my mom would think better of me then. No, I I never got that impression. Uh, I really didn't. I (laughs) honestly think that, and again, this is my own opinion. Uh, I don't have anything to back this up, but I'll tell you anyway. Uh, I think that, that Don developed um, maybe because of his sister, uh, a deep seated hatred for women um, that fueled his, his, um, anger of being cut off in an, in a relationship, which eventually led to Martha Sue Young's death. And, and that the law enforcement thing was just a way to, uh, or the criminal justice thing was just a way to kind of figure out how police work. Um, okay. I, I honestly think that maybe he was planning this for a while. I, 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 Everybody that I spoke with in my research um, were convinced, were convinced that uh, that this wasn't Don Miller's first murder, Martha Sue Young. Oh, so wow. if okay. so, if in fact that's the case, then there's other victims out there somewhere. Right, right. Or other attempts, at least. Okay. All righty. Well, now that we've gotten into the subject of the murders, how about we go over the the first victim and kind of how things played out with her. Sure, sure. Uh, Martha Sue Young, 
was a, a young lady. She was, I think, 19 at the time. And understand that the book uh, is 484 pages. And so if I go, if I, if I say, um, I think I remember, or if I recall correctly, it's mm -hmm. because there's so much information in the book. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Um, but Martha Sue Young was a, a graduate of East Lansing High School. And uh, uh, she was a very attractive young lady. She lived with her mother and her sister. Her parents had divorced and her dad lived in Texas. And so she lived with her sister and her mother. And uh, she had gone to uh, Texas um, and stayed with her grandparents and went to uh, uh, school down there for a year before she came back up to uh, Michigan State. And she did that uh, for a couple of reasons. And one of those was to get away from Don Miller. Um, Don uh, had uh, started to date her a little bit and uh, he was very um, uh, religious oriented. Everything revolved around um, the Bible and uh, that their relationship uh, was was God's will and that she should marry him someday and and so she became a little bit uh, put off by that and so she decided to go to Texas uh, for a year or two uh, to a university and she came she she missed her mom and she missed her sister and so she moved back up here and was going to complete the semester at Michigan State the uh, I think the spring semester. And so uh, in the fall of 1977, she had moved back up here and she, and Don and her had met through the church. Uh, her family, the, the young family went to the same church that the Miller family did. And uh, both Martha Sue and her sister knew Don's two sisters. And of course they noticed that Don had a brother and Don took note of Martha Sue and, and that's how they became acquainted and started dating. Okay. When, they, when they started dating, Martha was, um, their first trip was to the Ionia Free Fair and, and they had a ball. And then everything after that, um, Don never wanted to go out with, uh, with Martha Sue to like the bar or dancing or to friends' houses. It was always to Bible study or to things like that. And so, um, and so he would give her like little trinkets as gifts, like something you get at a, at a dime store. And uh, she got a little put off by that. She, you know, she began to wonder um, about their relationship and where it was going. Okay. And uh, surprisingly, one day in the fall of, of 1977, uh, Don showed up at her mother's house and he proposed. Oh, wow. He just dropped the bomb. Hey, um, will you marry me? And her mother was aghast, if you will. Um, and her sister hated Don, absolutely hated him, didn't trust him, had seen his anger. And uh, Martha Sue was, uh, on, while she had her reservations, she was, I think that she was excited that, that 
someone had taken that much interest in her to, to ask her to marry him. And so she accepted. Right. That's kind of, that's, that's really crazy, honestly, because if, you know, things could have turned out so much differently if she didn't come back and finished her school in Texas. And it's just, it's kind of crazy how the, the world would just works like that. You know, you don't even know she might, she might not have been his first victim and she might not have been anybody's victim, you know? Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, her, her excitement about the wedding didn't last long. Um, and I got two different sides of the story. I, I read uh, Martha Sue Young's mother's book. Sue Young wrote a book and it's called Lethal Friendship. And it was self-published back in, I want to say 2004, something like that. And uh, it talks a lot about her relationship with Martha. And that's where I got a lot of my background information. Um, and she talked about Martha's hesitation and uh, her, her questions and her fears about Don. And then when I talked to Gene, his dad, when we talked, um, he said that 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 was all a ruse that that uh, it was it was all Martha's fault and things like that. And so I got like two different sides to the story, which was interesting. And yeah. clearly, uh, I'm going to tell you right now, I know whose side that I took and believed. But oh, absolutely. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so uh, so shortly after Don proposed, it was right around Christmas time, uh, Martha Sue and her parent or not her parents, her mom and her sister uh, went on a trip to Pennsylvania. And on that trip, uh, they, they stayed with their best friends down there and Martha Sue and her sister and, and all the girls got together and they were talking about this, uh, proposal by Don and that she was going to get married. And I think that they basically, um, kind of talked her out of it. Like, are you sure you really want to do this? You know, right. um, that's the impression I got from, from the, uh, police reports that I read about their trip down there. And uh, so when Martha got back, um, they dropped her sister off at the airport, her mom and her. And uh, so she had a long talk with her mom and she, she decided that she was going to break off the relationship, break off the engagement. And so uh, just after Christmas, I believe it was just after Christmas, 1976, I'm sorry, this was 1976, just after Christmas, she broke off the relationship with Don, the, the engagement. And Don and her, according to her, decided to be to remain friends. Uh, Don let her keep the engagement ring. And uh, they, he wanted to be sure that they were still friends. And so she agreed to that. She had a, a, a babysitting gig on uh, New Year's Eve, 1976. And Don said, hey, we're still friends. Do you mind if I come along? And she's like, no, come on. Um, so they went and they babysat for some friends. And then they went back to Don's house on New Year's Eve. And they watched uh, the movie, It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, which is, a, um, I know you're very, very young ladies. So <laughs> it's a classic comedy. Uh, and uh, after that movie, Don said, I'm going to take Martha Sue home. And that's the last time she was seen alive. Uh, the next morning, January 1st, 1977, uh, Sue Young, Martha's mother, got up and realized that Martha had never come home. Her bed was still made and she panicked and she knew instantly 
she knew as a mother that Don had killed Martha Sue. Yeah, that motherly instinct, it, it's exactly. something. It is something. Yeah. And so she called the Millers. And uh, Gene and his wife, Elaine, and Don all came over to the house. It was like seven in the morning. And she said, Don, what happened? And Don said, uh, I dropped her off at 2 a.m. and uh, left her sitting on the, the front porch as I backed out of the driveway. And so they agreed, hey, we need to call the police. So uh, Officer Ken Olette from the East Lansing Police Department responded. He was a competitive shooter with Gene. He was walking by the front desk at 7 a.m. getting ready to start his shift and the phone rings. Well, the dispatcher was off doing something. So Ken grabbed the phone. Yeah, East Lansing Police Department. And there's a, a voice at the other end says, Ken, this is Gene. He said, Martha Sue's missing. And Ken said, who's that? He goes, was Donnie's girlfriend. So Ken responded to the call. So he goes over to the house and he says, uh, hey, Don, uh, you were the last one with her. What happened? And he said, oh, I left her on the front steps about 2 a.m. And, and I backed out of the drive and she waved to me. And I don't know, that's the last time I saw her. Well, uh, Officer Olette was immediately suspicious, immediately. And the reason why, it was 11 degrees outside with 16 mile an hour sustained winds. Nobody sits on their front porch looking at the stars. Heck no, I don't even go outside when it's 50 degrees outside. Well, and that was yeah. another thing that I was going to ask is I find it very odd that he just left his girlfriend on the steps and just drove off. Had he done that often? Well, that was all a story. It was all a lie. Um, he, he made that story up. So nobody knows if that's what he did often. But um, so Officer Olette uh, was immediately suspicious. Um, now, the East Lansing Police Department uh, and the Michigan State University Police uh, were not unfamiliar with missing students, but, but typically they always showed up, you know, within a day or so. Right. But something wasn't right. Something wasn't right. So uh, the officers decided, hey, maybe if we can take a look in Don's car, maybe we'll find something. And they said to Don, hey, maybe Martha Sue dropped her key in your car before she got out and she had no way to get into the house and she wandered off. Maybe she's at a friend's house. house. Could we look in your car? And so Don, of course, confers with his dad and says, and they, they agree to it. So Ken gets in, in the car, uh, both officers, they get in, in on either side. And one officer glances, just takes a quick glance under the front passenger seat without really looking mm -hmm. and he missed a key piece of evidence oh, Martha no. Sue Young, yeah Martha Sue Young's glasses were under the front seat oh no uh, and the reason that I know that is um well we can get into that in a little bit okay, uh, okay. but I know for a fact that he missed those glasses and that because he missed those Don disposed of those the next day uh but what they did find in the car was uh blood on the front seat uh, there was uh, a couple drops of blood on the front seat or a drop of blood. And there was uh, some scuff marks on the passenger door panel uh, of the passenger door. And so they took note of that. Uh, they asked Don about it. Don said, oh, I must have had a bloody nose. Yeah, that's it. I had a bloody nose a couple of days ago. 
So, uh, they, you know, they had nothing at that point. Um, so they couldn't have, because of they, they found the blood and the scuff marks, they couldn't have done anything with that if they wanted to? Well, they could have. And as a matter of fact, they did try to uh, get a search warrant for the okay. car. Um, and that was uh, denied. That request was denied. Uh, and so they were able to actually take a small sample of the blood that day, uh, which was very helpful. Yeah. And then it was it was two days later that they got they eventually did get a search warrant and more of that blood was uh, seized. And there was actually some blood spatter on the uh, passenger door also along with the scuff marks. So so that evidence was collected. Um, But Don maintained that he knew nothing about Martha Sue Young's disappearance uh, other than he dropped her off. Uh, He did take a couple polygraphs over a two or three day period that he failed. And uh, following that, his dad got an attorney and said, uh, you will not be talking to my son anymore. Uh, Now, at this point, um, do you think Don's father really believed that he was innocent? Or do you think just because he was his son, he was just there to back him up? No, I do believe that that Gene felt that Don was innocent. I really do. And I get that from, uh, from the interviews that I did with Gene. Uh, and understand that when I got to know Gene um, a couple years ago, he was in his uh, late 80s. And, uh, and he would drive down to a Jackson prison from up north. He lived up north and, uh, and visit Don once every couple months. And uh, so when, when I interviewed Don, or I'm sorry, when I interviewed Gene, uh, Gene said, um, you know, we were at the jail, uh, he and, and uh, Don and Don's attorney, and they were talking about the charges against him, which were, which had nothing to do with the murders at that time. That was an assault that I'll talk about in just a little bit here. Um, but they were talking about that. And Gene said to me uh, that he was coming up with um, different um, scenarios of how this all could have happened and how Don was being set up or, yeah. or not necessarily set up, but mistaken identity or something like that. Right. And he told me that Don, Don put his hand on, on Gene's leg and patted it and said, Hey dad, don't worry about it. Almost as if, Hey, this is my problem and uh, I'm responsible for it. Right. That's the impression that Gene got from that uh, conversation with Don in the jail. And that told Gene everything that, that he was in fact, that his son was in fact responsible. But this was, you know, two years after the Martha Sue Young deal. So when, so when Gene got an attorney for Don immediately following Martha Sue Young's disappearance, um, I believe that he felt Don was was innocent and and had nothing to do with that. And I feel like that happens in most cases for the parents of, you know, serial killers. They they don't want to believe that their child that they have raised for so long is capable of, you know, this horrendous crime that they're being accused of and it isn't until 
evidence gets, you know, placed in front of them and they finally realize that, okay, my child is capable of this. Right. And there's some cases where, you know, the parents never fully accept it either. Like we, we talked about the, the, the Ken and Barbie case. Yes. Um, and their parents still fully to this day believe that their children are innocent, even though they have all these videotapes and all these, all this evidence that comes forward. I think it's just ingrained as you in you as a parent that this is my child. I'm here to love them and raise them and I will have their back no matter what. Yes, absolutely. And, and, and remind me when, when we get into uh, the later part of Don's life, when, when I'm discussing that with you, please remind me uh, to touch on Jean's belief in Don's innocence again, because I think I have some really interesting information on that. Oh, absolutely. Uh, that I think that you'll, uh, you'll enjoy hearing about. Okay. Uh, so, so the case uh, against Don Miller uh, goes cold. Um, Martha Sue Young's uh, disappearance is investigated exhaustively by the East Lansing Police Department. Um, they checked with friends, neighbors, family. Uh, uh, none of Don's story was making sense to them. Um, and, uh, and they had nothing more to go on. They had no body. Uh, they checked all of the uh, public transportation, you know, to see if she had left town. Nothing like that. She had a new job she was supposed to be starting the following Monday. Uh, she had uh, an uncashed check in her um, in her dresser drawer that her mother had given her. Uh, none of her clothes were missing. Um, it was just mm -hmm. as if it she makes just me, disappeared. It makes me feel really good that they did search so extensively because I feel like in way too many cases she's young, she's in college. You know, they're they like you said before, Rod, that you know oftentimes they show up again. So for the fact that they were like, okay, something's wrong. Let's really look into this. It just, it kind of gives me faith in um, a lot of police work again, because oftentimes, sometimes, you know, they're like, oh, they're just young. You know, they probably went to a friend's house. They went out to a party. They'll be back. So it's really refreshing to hear that. Well, and, and, and you sort of run into that in, in another missing person case that I'll talk about that, that Don was responsible for um, here in just a few minutes. Um, where the the uh, the victim, Wendy Bush, um, was sort of a free spirit, and so so we'll talk about that in just a minute. But okay, um, so jump ahead about ten months. It's October now of uh, 1977. Um, there's still uh, no sign of Martha Sue Young, and the uh, East Lansing Police uh, basically, while they they are still investigating it. It's kind of a cold case by that point. Um, this wasn't common during that time, right? They, they thought maybe she could have just been taken or something like that because back then, like murders and stuff like that weren't common to the area. Well, that's true. Uh, I don't think that that you uh, that you heard a lot about serial killers in the mid 70s. 
uh, right. other than the the famous ones. Um, right. right. Like if right. it starts to lead into the the satanic panic era with, you know, um Charles Manson and then you get like Richard Ramirez, the, those are like the big names, you know. Everybody knows those. Those are household names. And sure. so and like Lansing had never had anything like that or the Lansing area. Right. Uh and so um, in October, there's a couple of pheasant hunters out and they come across Martha Sue Young's clothing uh, near um, uh, up in Bath Township near Rose Lake. And right. what they find is that it is laid out almost as if she had laid down and simply disappeared. Her bra is inside of her sweater. Her sweater is inside the coat she was wearing. Her panties are inside the pants that she was wearing. Um, her shoes are at the base of her pants, um, it, and it literally uh, is if she had laid down and disappeared. And the police uh, believed that uh, one possibility, and, and one, and I mean just one possibility, was that there was some sort of a uh, uh, ritualistic overtone to that. I was going to say most of the time, I think when I've seen that, it's usually like they have some sort of remorse towards their actions towards that victim when they when they lay things out in a specific manner. Well, I think what what I found out later, much later, and, and I'm going to tell you that this came out after the book was published, Oh, is that uh, Don... And the way that I, that I found this out was a letter that he had written to another author back years ago that I got a hold of. And what he said was that there was no ritualistic overtone to it. It was simply a matter of if I lay the bot or the if I lay the clothing out so that it's visible to the police helicopter that's been searching for so long for Martha Sue Young that if they see that, they'll direct their search efforts toward where those clothes are and away from where the body is. Oh, wow. So it was, so it it was, was simply a ruse. It was, yeah. it was a decoy, if you will. Um, there was nothing to it. And, and uh, you know, I don't know that the police wasted a lot of time on, on the belief that it was, uh, there was a ritualistic overtone to it or not. Um, but that's what, that's what they believed at the time, but it, it had nothing to do with that. That uh, is that is kind of scary, honestly, because he he thought that through and he was able to basically send them a red herring and say, hey, I'm going to put this evidence over here and they're going to spend time over there and not even think about where she could actually be. Right. So just the, the fact are, that he could think that through. You are exactly right. You are exactly right. And in each one of these cases literally uh don miller uh had the forethought to plan ahead i believe uh, where he was going to dump these bodies long before the murders were even uh committed i really i truly believe that yeah that's scary that. I, yeah that is terrifying so uh so the case is still cold. The police are now in October of 1977 con convinced that Martha Sue Young is dead. Um, there's no doubt in their mind now. Uh, and the case remains cold. So jump ahead to June of 1978. Uh, there's a young woman by the name of Marita Choquette. 
and Marita uh, works at the WKAR studios on the MSU campus. And she lives in the small town of Grand Ledge. Uh, she lives in an apartment complex there, lives by herself. She's divorced. Um, uh, she's working on her second degree at MSU plus working there. And her neighbors see her in Grand Ledge um, the night before she's reported missing. Uh, they see her taking the trash out and they talk to her briefly. They exchange a, a little joke about um, her neighbor being good looking and he's an elderly man. <laughs> and uh, so that's the last time she's seen. The next day, uh, her car is found in the WKAR parking lot on the MSU campus, but it's not parked in the same spot that she always parks in. It's parked in a different spot. Hmm. And her boss can't find her anywhere. Her boss waits thinking that she's going to show up. She's going to show up. She's going to show up. Well, she doesn't show up. So the, uh, they send um, a friend over to check her apartment. Of course, it's locked. Um, so they contact her dad. Her dad uh, goes down to her apartment. He lives up in, I think, Fremont. Um, he's a minister. Uh, and he goes to her apartment. No sign of her, apartment's locked, nothing's amiss. So he contacts the MSU police and they open a missing person investigation. Now, uh, with that, um, they search her apartment again. They take samples of hair and stuff so that, so that they have those in case they need them um, later. Mm -hmm. uh, and they, they start checking with her friends and her family and her ex-husband and things like that. And she is nowhere to be found at all. And two weeks later, uh, so it's the MSU police working in conjunction with the Grand Ledge Police Department. Okay. The Grand Ledge Police Department took the original missing person report. And the MSU police are now involved because that's where her car is found. And uh, uh, two weeks later, out at Okemos and Willoughby Road in Meridian Township, south of Okemos, mm -hmm. uh, there's a farmer and he's taken a load of rocks back to some woods on a, on a front end loader. And as he drives through these woods, there's a, a, a trail that leads back from the road into these woods. And he's driving through these woods and there's a stack of uh, concrete slabs that are used to build silos. They're like two feet by four foot. Yeah. Okay. And uh, he notices that they're stacked in an unusual manner that he doesn't remember them being stacked like that a week earlier. And he notices a, a very foul odor uh, and that the, the stack of concrete slabs is covered with flies and maggots. And so he thinks initially, hey, maybe somebody just dropped or maybe somebody uh, disposed of a dead animal back here. But wait a minute. Why would they cover it up if they drag it into the woods? Yeah. Right. So he dumps his load of rocks and he's driving back by and he's like, I got to take a look. Curiosity got the best of him. So the first slab that he moves uh, is covering Marita Choquette's face. And of course, she's in a, a state of decomposition after two weeks in the hot sun. Um, and so he, he notifies the Ingham County Sheriff's Office. It's their jurisdiction. So they get there. Uh, and it turns out that, uh, Mar I'm sorry, Marita Choquette has been stabbed 17 to 19 times. Oh, wow. And her hands have been cut off. 
Oh, wow. And they're found uh, in a uh, almost a praying position. Uh, and they're under another concrete slab nearby. And so now the Ingham County Sheriff's Office is investigating the homicide along with uh, the MSU police and the Grand Ledge police. That is an incredibly aggressive and violent death. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, do you think at this point, because he had that that cool off period, as they call it, right? The the few months of him just cooling down. and, And then do you think because he waited so long to kill again, that's why he was... Because when you when you said seventeen to twenty times, I believe you said he, she was stabbed. That is such a like a large that's overkill, basically. Do you think that he was eager, or do you think he was just like in kind of like a like a frenzy? Well, what what he has said to me in the form of a letter. And by the way, I'll I'll pause right now and ask you if you know how to start a letter to a serial killer, and you'll say <laughs> no. And I'll say with someone else's return address. Absolutely. (laughs) But uh, with that being said, and the fact that my wife is less than pleased about that, (laughs) um, Don has uh, written me a letter. Uh, Actually, I've gotten six letters from him. And and, uh, in the the letter that he wrote to me where he describes um, uh, what he was going through during his killing spree, and by the way, that is in the book. It's a postscript in the book, uh, the letter that I'm referring to. And he says that uh, the, the killings after Martha Sue Young were copycat killings, wherein he would see someone and it would remind him of Martha Sue and he would take out his anger on that person. Okay. Well. And, and honestly, in Marita Choquette's case, uh, I would say that's probably accurate. By the time that he got to uh, Wendy Bush, I would say that's inaccurate. And and that's a quick turnaround um, because on the day that Marita Choquette's body is found and police are uh, still at the crime scene, Wendy Bush disappears from the MSU campus. Oh, wow. So he extremely quick on that yeah. one. Yeah, extremely quick uh, within two weeks. Um, now, in the letters, did he like give you a reason why he decided to cut her hands off and kind of put them in like a praying motion? Like, well, uh, you have to understand that the way that uh, let me describe uh, the the position of Marita's body. Okay. Okay. Uh, her, her, uh, her hands were cut off. They were laying kind of by her side, but she was laying back on top of her, uh, her legs were bent and she was laying on top of them almost as, as if she had been kneeling and fallen backward after she was killed. Okay. Okay. And, um, what, what it turned out in eventually was that the police recovered Don Miller's security guard handcuffs that he had been issued they were recovered in the search warrant Mm -hmm. and they had blood on them and the theory is that don had her handcuffed and that he'd forgotten the key and put off her hands uh, because they were probably behind her 
And she um, just had her fingers interlaced. Exactly. Her fingers mm-hmm. were interlaced when he cut her hands off. Okay. So, okay. so Ingham County was convinced that this had nothing to do with uh, Martha Sue Young's disappearance. This was simply a homicide. Uh, and they were, they were pretty certain uh, based on, on the, uh, the way that the body was positioned, the fact that the hands were cut off, they were in a praying position, um, that the way that the, the stones were laid or the concrete slabs were laid out, that there was a ritualistic overtone to Marita's killing. Right. And, there, and there's no correlation between the two anyways, because they don't have Martha Sue Young's body to make any sort of connection to. Exactly. Exactly. The, the East Lansing police were convinced as was as was the uh, other law enforcement agencies in the Tri-County area that Martha Sue Young, though she was probably dead, it was simply a boyfriend-girlfriend murder, a domestic-related uh, violence murder of some sort. Um, and so there was no reason to connect uh, this violent uh, stabbing um, and likely rape uh, of this young MSU co-ed to, right. to, Wendy Sue, or to um, Martha Sue Young's disappearance. Right. Yeah. And so uh, they began working on that. And uh, they, they actually interviewed um, Marita Choquette's uh, friend who was a minister. And they showed him uh, not necessarily crime scene photos, but like a sketch of the crime scene and, and how the body was positioned and things like that. And he began to um, theorize about uh, the ritualistic overtones that he perceived in their uh, investigation. And uh, in the end, he was right on the money in describing the killer. Really? Almost like a FBI profiler. It was, it was absolutely uncanny. They should have hired him. Yeah, they should have. <laughs> So Ingham County uh, is convinced that uh, uh, Marita Choquette's murder is uh, not related to Martha Sue Young's disappearance. And they began to focus on uh, a guy that she knew through church. They were convinced that that he was responsible for her murder. So the MSU police that night, they get the report, or actually the following morning, uh, they get the report that Wendy's, uh, Wendy Bush is now missing. Wendy Bush was uh, a free spirit. Uh, She loved to make new friends. She loved to talk. She would get into trouble at work in the cafeteria where she worked at MSU for sitting down and and just gabbing with people. (laughs) I know Um, a couple people like that. Yeah, she was just a very friendly person. She's a social Uh, butterfly. Yeah, she was a social butterfly. Yeah. And, um, so when she was reported missing, because she didn't show up to work, uh, police checked her dorm. She lived in Case Hall. And uh, she was uh, a pretty young blonde, um, long hair, nothing like Marita Choquette or, or uh, um, Martha, Martha Sue Young. Yeah, mm-hmm. she didn't look anything like them. She had long blonde hair. And uh, uh, so they began to check her dorm and they discovered uh, she was epileptic and she had her medication still in her dorm. Um, all so she pre- wouldn't have just left. I'm sorry. So she wouldn't have just left without her medication. Exactly. Exactly. And so they had, they had to play this two ways, you know, 
did she just take off with somebody or is it a, a legitimate missing person with foul play because their stuff is still there? Um, they really had a dichotomy, if you will. Now, are um, they starting to kind of connect the dots that all of these women are um, students at MSU or is that kind of something that comes in later? I, I think that the press by that time has started to take notice almost more than the police. Um, I think there was some, maybe some thoughts uh, by the local law enforcement agencies in the Tri-County area, but the press had actually started to suggest it. And uh, Now, do you think that kind of hindered the investigation with the press being so involved, or do you think it kind of helped in the situation? You know, that's a great question. Um, I don't think that it hindered the investigation at all. Um, I think maybe it maybe it fueled the speculation on the police agencies that, hey, maybe they're right. Maybe there is something here that we're missing. Um, so I don't think that it necessarily hindered the investigation at all, no. Uh, so okay. now they have um, two missing women and one uh, dead woman in the Tri-County area, basically uh, in Ingham County. And by now they're probably like, oh my gosh, what's, what's going on? This has never happened before. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So six weeks later, as police are still uh, looking into Marita Choquette's murder, Wendy Bush's disappearance and uh, not having any clue about Marcia Young other than um, Don Miller likely is the suspect in that. Right. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, there's a school teacher by the name of Christine Stewart, and she lives uh, in a developing subdivision off of Coolidge Road, uh, just north of Frandor, if you're familiar with the Frandor Shopping yes. Center. Yes. And uh, she has to take her car, her sports car, uh, down to the 600 block of East Michigan to uh, automotive repair shop to be fixed. And she tells her husband, She's going to take the bus back to Frandor, and then she's just going to walk up Coolidge Street to her home um, and cut into the subdivision to her home. And so he's a contractor. Um, he gets up 5 a.m. She's still in bed. He heads off to work. She takes her car to uh, East Michigan Avenue. She grabs the bus back to Frandor. She's walking up. Uh, Coolidge Street to Fair Oaks, which runs to the east. And as she gets to that intersection and, and makes that turn, there's a pickup truck coming up to the stop sign. And it's a guy that she knows. He works for her husband. And he stops and he rolls the window down and they joke around and he says, oh, what did, what did Ernie do? Did he take your, your car away from you? And she said, no, no, I'm just getting it fixed. It's, it's in repairs. You know, I'm just walking home and, and they exchange pleasantries and, and he takes off. Okay. So she continues to start walking uh, eastbound on Fair Oaks. At the same time, there's a woman coming northbound on Coolidge in a car. And she's got to stop suddenly because somebody turned in front of her. And as she comes to a stop, she glances over and she sees a brown car and she sees something that upsets her so bad that her mind shuts down. And huh. she, she makes eye contact with a man and 
she becomes so terrified, she takes off. Later that night, when Christine Stewart is reported missing and it's all over the news because now there's three missing women in the Lansing area and yeah. one dead woman who's been found. Right. When it hits the news, she realizes she's seen something, but she can't remember what it was. And so she calls the East Lansing police. And the next day, they take her to be hypnotized. What? <laughs> they take her to be hypnotized. You know, and I've heard... I've heard that that actually really works because when things happen or um, we've seen it with people who have like a lot of trauma, your brain just shuts down and makes it so you don't remember that part. So they have to put you in sort of this like hypnosis state to open up that subconsciousness to, to get that information back. Yeah, you are exactly right. And in that uh, interview, and, and let me describe this to you because um, part of my background, uh, uh, because I was in law enforcement for 30 years, I was uh, Eaton, the Eaton County Sheriff's Office uh, police composite artist. Okay. So I would do the sketch of the bad guys. And it was really cool. <laughs> uh, it, it, I'll tell you the fascinating part about, about that whole career is that um, a forensic interview that's done in cooperation with a psychiatrist and the victim is fascinating. And that is what they did with this witness. Uh, they sat down uh, and the psychiatrist uh, basically hypnotized her, um, which is nothing more than a complete state of relaxation with a fixed focal point. Right. And, and the police artist sat next to him. It's done a little differently nowadays. I've done two of them in my career. Uh, forensic interviews with a psychiatrist where I, I was actually in another room um, and watching by videotape and I was doing the sketch as she was describing the victim or, or describing the suspect to the psychiatrist so that's how that's how it was done when I did it but back in in the late 70s uh, the police artist was sitting in the same room with the psychiatrist and they hypnotized this witness and he's doing the sketch as she's describing him and she's also describing what she saw. And she saw a brown car. She was able to say it had a red, white, and blue license plate, which was the 1976 bicentennial license plates that everybody had back then. Okay. Uh, she was able to describe uh, a few stickers in the window. She was able to describe a man and a woman uh, art, uh, wrestling sort of, and he pushed her back in the car. And she could see the woman's feet hanging out of the car, kind of kicking as he was trying to hold her down in the car. And then uh, she saw him grab what she first described as a book off the dashboard of the car. Okay. And as the interview went on, it turned out that the book was in fact a knife. Oh, wow. She no wonder she... No wonder she just kind of blanked it out. You know, if I saw something like that, you know, you you don't really know what to do. And this is before cell phones. So it's, it's not like she could just whip out a phone and call 911, you know, but it's crazy right. how much your mind can remember and so much details that you you can remember, you know, the license plate, the stickers, the color of the car, mm -hmm. you know, things like that is crazy. Especially you got to think she was just passing by this car. I, I'm sure she wasn't driving extremely slow, you know, and, and but, just 
you know, heavily watching. So to have that much detail in just the split second that you drove by and witnessed something like that is incredible. Mm -hmm. It is incredible. And, and it was so traumatizing that it was ingrained in her memory. Yeah. That's crazy. So what she saw was him reach up. uh, She first described it as a book and it turned out uh, as the interview went on, she described him grabbing a knife off the dashboard and thrusting it into the car three times. Oh, wow. And she was even able literally to describe blood dripping off the knife. Wow. And, And at that point he turned and saw her and they made eye contact and she freaked out and took off. Oh, I, I would have. I would have so, for sure. So the police were able to come up with a composite sketch of the suspect over uh, the next day or two. And they published it in the local paper. And uh, two days later, two days after Christine Stewart's disappearance and likely murder, out in Eaton County in Delta Township, which actually is where I spent my career, up in Delta Township, two teenagers. Uh, Their parents had just built a home. Their dad and their stepmother had just built a home on Canal Road, South St. Joe Highway. It was Mm -hmm. the only house in that stretch. Now there's there's houses everywhere along there. But it was the only house there. And the house was only like two months old. And uh, every day, because both parents worked, these two teens had to come into the house at three o'clock and call their stepmother and let let her know what was going on. And she would tell them to make sure to do chores or whatever. And so that particular afternoon, uh, Randy, uh, the, the 13-year-old boy, is out and back, and he is fishing in a, a pond out behind this new build. And Lisa, his 14-year-old sister, is in the home. Okay. And it's getting to be close to three o'clock. So she goes out, and, and she walks out of the house into the garage, which is attached. And then she walks out the garage, the garage door is open. She walks out and back and she looks for Randy and she yells for him. Hey, it's time to come in. We got to call what Randy refers to nowadays, the evil, wicked stepmother. But (laughs) anyway, so uh, Randy doesn't hear her. He doesn't hear her. He's off fishing. And so she comes back around to come back through the garage door and she sees a brown car in the driveway. And she thinks, oh, must be one of the contractors is here to fix something because the house is so new. They've had contractors coming in and out and, right. and fine tuning things. And, and so she thinks it's a contractor. And as she walks into the garage from the house, Don Miller walks into the garage from the house. And she sees him and she's, she's not alarmed. Uh, and he says to her, hey, what time does your dad get home? And she says, oh, about six o'clock. Oh, can you write this number down for him so he can give me a call? Sure. She goes back in the house inside the garage and he follows her in. And as she's digging for a piece of paper in a drawer, he grabs her around the throat with his arm and holds a knife to her, to her throat. That must and have been he, terrifying. Yeah. At 14 years old. Yeah. Yeah. And he forces her into her parents' bedroom where he has already been because he has laid out neckties and nylons. Oh my God. He binds her, he takes her clothes off and he rapes her. And when he's done, 
he takes the belt from her shorts now and her hands are are bound behind her back and her feet are bound and he begins to strangle her with her own belt oh my god he's working on his fifth victim is what he's doing yeah right and he pulls that belt so tight that it snaps in two. Oh wow wow and at the moment that it snaps in two, just before she loses consciousness, Randy comes into the house. Miller hears him. Randy doesn't see what's going on. He can't see in the bedroom. But Miller hears him. And so Miller leaves Lisa on the floor and he goes out and he confronts Randy. Hey, how you doing? Randy thinks it's a contractor. He just so calmly walks out there. Yep. And he gets behind Randy, does the same thing, grabs him around his neck with his arm, holds a knife to his throat. Where's your bedroom? I'm not going to hurt you. Randy says upstairs. Randy's a gangly little 13-year-old. And uh, Miller takes him upstairs, forces him to the floor, and begins to cut his throat. Oh, wow. With a knife. And Randy, realizing what's going on, starts screaming. And he's, he manages to free one hand and he grabs the knife and he throws it. And it, it goes under one of the beds in his bedroom. There's two beds in his bedroom. Goes under one of the beds. Miller grabs him around the neck with both hands and, and strangles him to the point where Randy loses consciousness. Randy wakes up a couple minutes later. He's bleeding like a stuck pig. He's been stabbed twice in the chest. Wow. What Miller did was after Randy lost consciousness, he wanted to make sure Randy was dead. So he got the knife from under the bed and stabbed him twice in the chest. Wow. In the meantime, Lisa, still naked and bound with her hands behind her back, has managed to free her feet. And she can hear Randy screaming upstairs. So she, she tries to hide in the bathroom and she realizes she got one chance. She runs for the front door, manages to unlock it because Miller had locked it. And she runs out into traffic naked at 14 years old with her hands tied behind her back. Oh my goodness. To get help. Now, so, do you, have you spoke to Don about this instance? And did he tell you by chance, like, did he scout the house beforehand or because he, he, like you said, he had been in there. So he knew where the parents' room was. Did he, how long was he in there before uh, she came back? Or was this not the first time he was in that house? You want me to do all those questions at once? <laughs> <laughs> I'm no. sorry. When I, when I, when I get excited about a topic they just, oh. they, they spurt out. <laughs> no. And those are questions that I had. And those are questions that remain unanswered. Okay. Um, I don't know how long Lisa was out back. I know that that when she came out from the house into the garage and out of the garage to go back to call for Randy, the car was not there. When she came back, the car was there. Um, I don't think that Miller scouted that house um, particularly. Honestly, uh, there's so many theories here. And one of those, because the, the, the house where Randy and Lisa lived was literally one mile from where Wendy Bush's body was eventually found. Oh. Literally. And I believe, 
and I base this on being a cop for 30 years, is that Miller was likely either out checking to see if Wendy's body was still there, or he was scouting out locations to dump his next victim. And so it was just an opportunity. Yeah, he happened to see Lisa in her shorts and, and tank top in the summer and decided, hey, there's a there's a victim. And so those are that's just my theory. I have nothing to back that up, but I think it's it's probably pretty accurate. And and did he did he ever explain like why he changed the way he did things? I mean, because for the other two victims, they were they've been stabbed. So why didn't he do that with her at first? Well, I think that that Don's uh, method of operation is strangulation and uh, stabbing. I, I truly believe that. Okay. Um, uh, I know uh, that he, he killed Martha Sue Young by strangling her. He killed uh, Marita Choquette by stabbing. Uh, he killed uh, Christine Stewart by stabbing. And uh, I think that that Lisa was, you know, she was only 14 years old, um, that maybe he felt he could just strangle her without having to stab her. Uh, like he could overpower her more easily. Sure. Okay. Sure. Uh, those are his two um, MOs, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and we'll get into that uh, down the road here too. Okay. Um, but so, so Lisa has run out into traffic naked, her hands uh, tied behind her back. She flags down two cars. One is the Delta Township fire chief uh, who happened to be driving by. And he gets her in the back of his car. Another uh, a GM employee driving by, he pulls in the driveway and he heads for the house and Miller's coming out the front door. And he confronts Miller and he says, hey, is there a, is there a young boy stabbed in there or hurt in there? And Miller goes, I don't know, maybe. And he goes, well, you better wait here till the police get here. And as he takes a step toward Miller, Miller runs around him, jumps in his car and flees before the guy can get to him. And, but the guy gets his license plate and within an hour, Don Miller's in custody. And that's the last uh, freedom Don Miller has seen in the last 40 some years. Wow. Good. Um, so the, the, this gets a little complicated. But Don Miller's charged with the uh, rape and attempted murder of both Lisa and the attempted murder of her brother, Randy. Police quickly realize he's the, the uh, responsible for uh, uh, Wendy um, Bush's disappearance, um, Marita Choquette's disappearance, Christine Stewart's disappearance, and Mark Stu Young's disappearance. Um, they, they put together a task force um, and they begin to try to make connections between all of them. Uh, what, what's everybody's connection to Don Miller? So Don Miller, uh, while he is on trial for the assault on the, the two teenagers, um, a grand jury is impaneled in Lansing or in Ingham County. And the grand jury feels that they can prove second degree murder uh, 
in the deaths of Martha Sue Young and in Christine Stewart, because they have some trace evidence in Martha Sue Young's case, mm -hmm. and they have uh, the witness in the Christine Stewart case. Right. So they feel that they can prove second degree murder in those cases, um, but not necessarily in the death of Marisa, Marita Choquette and the disappearance of Wendy Bush. Right, because we, so, we still haven't found those bodies yet. So Right. And uh, there, there had only been uh, less than a, uh, like half a dozen cases worldwide where there had been prosecution without bodies. Um, but they felt even without the bodies of Martha Sue and Christine that they could prove second degree murder. And so the, um, the grand jury indicted Don Miller for second degree murder in those two disappearances. So now, while Don's uh, right after he's convicted in, or just before he's convicted in the um, sexual assault on the, on the children, mm -hmm. uh, he is uh, facing and bound over to circuit court for the second degree murder charges. He's convicted in the rape and attempted murder of the two teens. So when he goes to prison for that, he gets 30 to 50 years and everybody thinks we don't have to worry about Don Miller anymore. He's gone for 30 to 50 years. Right. Plus he's still facing the second degree murder charges. Right. So his attorney realizes, hey, he's going to trial on his second degree murder charges. And if he gets convicted of those, he's going to do some serious time. Right. Uh, on the 30 to 50. So the defense attorney comes up with a plea bargain. And that is that if Don agrees to lead authorities to the bodies of the two victims that he's charged with murdering, Martha Sue Young and... Uh, uh, Christine Stewart, that in exchange, um, he would plead guilty to two counts of manslaughter instead of second degree murder. And I just find crazy, but I, I understand that they, they want to find those bodies. So they don't really right. have an option. Exactly. And so uh, he would also serve his time concurrently, uh, which means at the same time. So whatever sentence he would get for pleading guilty to manslaughter, he would serve at the same time that he's doing the 30 to 50 for the assault on the Gilbert children. Okay. So Peter Hauk was the prosecuting attorney and I interviewed Mr. Hauk um, for the book. And he said, you know, in, in 1977, January of 77, January 1st of 77, when I was out celebrating uh, being elected Ingham County prosecutor, Don Miller was out murdering Martha Sue Young. And he said, I ran my campaign on doing away with plea bargaining. And he, he said, I never knew that in two years, two years later, I would have to make a deal with the devil. That, yeah, that I wouldn't either. I mean, when you, I feel like if you're going to go into that profession, you go in with the kind of a mindset of how you are going to be, you know, you go in very black and white, you know, and in these scenarios, you kind of, you have to have quote unquote deals with the devil sometime just to be able to find 
the evidence that you need and really just I'm sure the families were pressing you know you know where's my daughter where's my my sister you know where are they so by then you're just like you know we have to give them something so like I understand the the positioning but at the same time I couldn't even imagine being put in that position I I feel like that's something that's just a way of life as well though just a matter of everything you know when you first become a parent you see other parents doing something and you think I'm never going to do that. And then here you are having a screaming toddler and you're like, somebody just give them something to make them (laughs) stop, you know? So it's, I think it's just, it's a way of life. You go into things thinking that you're not going to have to be, you know, forced to do these things, but then you come down to it and it's, it's all you got. Right. Exactly. And, and, and that's what it was. Um, the prosecuting attorney, you know, uh, I knew that, uh, let me just back up real quick. This book was written, Killing Women was written uh, from a very unique perspective. And by that, I mean that uh, after 30 years in law enforcement, uh, I realized that I knew uh, probably 90% of the people that are involved in this case from from the original police officer uh, taking the original missing person uh, report to the prosecuting attorney that that uh, locked Don Miller up for the rape of the Gil, uh, Lisa and Randy Gilbert, um, to uh, Don Miller's own defense attorney, to the judges. I knew so many of these people, and that was the whole thing: is that that these families wanted uh, some sort of closure. And so I asked Don Miller's attorney when I interviewed him because he was a friend of mine, and I said. Uh, I said, Tom, I said, why did you even broach this plea bargain? And he said, because I had daughters. And he says, I knew that those families needed closure. Yeah. So he knew. Yeah. He knew. Did and he- that's what it was. And so uh, Sue Young was against it at first. Ernie Stewart, Christine's uh, husband, simply wanted his wife back. He wanted his wife back. Yeah. And so, so what they did was uh, Miller took authorities uh, to Martha Sue Young's body. It was found out in Pregoras Park in Bath Township. It was uh, completely skeletonized, uh, somewhat separated. Of course, it had been, you know, a uh, year and a half, two years. And uh, he then went and took them to Christine Stewart's body. That was off of Jason Road back in a drainage ditch um, at the corner of 27 and, or 127 and uh, Jason Road in Clinton County. And uh-huh. uh, you had to know that that, or that those areas were there. Yeah, um, yeah. That's why I say in the, in the case of uh, Wendy Bush, uh, and the case of the Gilbert children, I think that he was probably out scouting a new location to dump a future victim. Yeah, because he did kind of spread them out quite a ways. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, police came back um, after finding those bodies. And I got to tell you just a quick funny story. Um, uh, Mike Woodworth was a uh, assistant prosecutor and he was working on the cases and they had gotten the, the bodies of, of 
both victims, uh, Martha and Christine. And he was standing with Miller at, at the hospital. I think, I think it was the next day. They were going to hypnotize him or, or give him, no, it wasn't hypnotized. It was, uh, they were going to give him some sodium amytal. Um, and so he said to Miller, he said, uh, you know, Don, he says, I got to go get a new job. And Miller looked at him like, what? And then he said, yeah, he says, they just hired me to work on these cases. And now that the, the victims have been found, he says, I got to go get a new job. And Miller kind of looked a little puzzled and, and, and Woodworth, he's a great, great big tall guy. And he's got a great sense of humor. He says, he told me in the interview, he said, I, I, I pulled a fast one. He said, you know, Don, he says, uh, I think I'm going to go back to the office and I'm just going to type up a warrant and I'm going to charge you with the murder of Wendy Bush. Now, Wendy Bush wasn't part of the original idea here. Yeah, um, right. We bargain. Um, but he said, I'm going to charge you with the death of Wendy Bush. And he said, Miller's eyes got real big. And he looked at Captain Tiff, who was standing there from the sheriff's office. And he said, can he do that? And Tiff looked back at him and he said, yeah, he's crazy. <laughs> so they took, they took Miller back. They gave him sodium amytal. And can you and, explain, can you explain what that is and what it does? Well, to the layperson, uh, now understand that I'm not a doctor, but I did sleep at a Holiday Inn Express once. Uh, <laughs> so uh, sodium amytal, uh, some would refer to uh, the, the slang term is truth serum. Um, basically, it's um, a drug that will lower your inhibitions um, so that you talk more freely. Uh, and that's in layman's terms. Uh, okay. in, in the research that I did uh, regarding the trial and, and the psychologists uh, that testified both for the defense and the prosecution, um, Mike Hocking, who was the prosecutor, asked one of the defense witnesses about sodium amytal, and he said, uh, well, isn't it true that it's simply like taking four or five shots of, of whiskey? And the defense attorney said, well, more like, I think he said peppermint schnapps or something like that. So, <laughs> so it's it, basically it lowers your inhibitions. Now, is and that it, common to give, give someone that? Well, you know, I don't think that it is. Uh, no, uh, especially today. Back then, I don't know. I, I really don't. They, they offered it to him. You know, the, the investigators offered it to him and the prosecution uh, expert psychologist offered it to him. And Miller would say, no, 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 I'm not taking anything. That's against my religion. Uh, but suddenly when the defense offered it to him was, oh, sure. Sure, because you know the the defense was going to ask him appropriate questions that would be to their benefit. Right, right, right. So um, when he finally did submit to it uh, after they had found the bodies of of Martha and Christine, the doctor, or the attorney, came out and told Woodworth, "Well, he says he knows Wendy Bush, but he didn't kill her." And Woodworth looked at Tiff and he goes, "He killed her." <laughs> so they went back in. They interviewed him again. Uh, and uh, turns out that he agreed to take them to the body of Wendy Bush the next day. And, and uh, she was found up in Delta Township, literally a mile from the Gilbert home where he attacked oh. the two teenagers. Wow. So uh, it's important um, that people understand that Don Miller 
Don Miller uh, was sent to prison for the rape and attempted murder of a teenage girl and the attempted murder of her brother and two counts of manslaughter. By the late 1990s, prior to the, uh, Michigan having truth and sentencing laws, uh, wherein, and I'll give you an example uh, for your listeners, if, if I get sentenced to, uh, for a crime, um, let's say armed robbery, five to 10 years, and I get sentenced to that, I, under truth and sentencing, I have to do at least the five years, okay? okay. okay. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Back in, in the late 70s, they didn't have truth and sentencing. So when you went to prison, you got good time and this time off and, and uh, all sorts of things where, where your, your sentence was eventually, you served a lot less time. Right. Yeah. And oh, yeah. I find that really infuriating when, when someone commits a horrendous crime and their good behavior. So they let, just let them out. And that is so infuriating to me because this person had it in them to do this crime in the first place. What's going to stop them again? You know? Right. Right. So, um, so in the late nineties, Don Miller was getting ready to get out of prison. Oh, wow. uh, he had served, uh, you know, maybe let's see, 79, 89, he'd probably served close to 20 years of the 30 to 50. And because of good time and whatever, he was fixing to get out. And, um, and he knew it. And so did everybody else. And that's just insane. So there was a, a, a group of concerned people that got together. It consisted of uh, the Eaton County prosecutor, the former Eaton County prosecuting attorney who was now in private practice. He might even have been a judge at that time. Um, police officers, uh, investigators, detectives, um, psychologists, victims, corrections officers. Uh, it was the uh, CCAP, Committee for Community Awareness and Protection. And they got together with the sole purpose of trying to find a way to keep Don Miller in prison because they knew he was a serial killer. Yeah. Yes. So um, as they, they would meet and uh, Peter Hauk finally said one day, you know, the best way to find out a person's background is to check their prison records. So they pulled all of Don Miller's prison records and this was in 1998. In 1994, four years earlier, Don Miller was caught with a garrote in his prison dorm. And for your listeners that don't know what a garrot is, it's a strangulation device. It is strictly an offensive weapon. It is not a defensive weapon. Yeah. It's an offensive weapon. It's used to strangle someone. It was a 72 inch shoelace knotted in the middle. Uh, it was uh, doubled up and knotted in the middle with two barrel button handles on each end. And it was folded up and uh, in Don Miller's uh, uh, footlocker in his prison dorm. And it was found on a shakedown. Now, Miller was charged with that administratively in the prison. Uh, the, the prison system sees so many weapons offenses that they don't charge those criminally. They, they take away good time and such. And so Don lost some good time, but he was never charged criminally with possessing a weapon inside the prison. And so the Eaton County prosecuting attorney, Jeff Sauter, went up to Chippewa County in the UP where Don was serving his time at Kinross 
and convinced the uh, Chippewa County prosecutor to charge Don Miller with the offense that had occurred four years earlier, possessing a strangulation device inside the prison. Wow. And the prosecuting attorney in Chippewa County agreed. And Don Miller was tried and convicted before a jury of possessing, possessing a dangerous weapon inside the prison. He was also convicted as a habitual offender. And because he was convicted as a habitual offender, that allowed the judge to go outside the sentencing guidelines of five years and sends him up to life in prison. And the judge sentenced him to an additional 20 to 40 years in prison wow. for possessing that. Now, I, I, I wanted to, uh, I, I mentioned earlier about reminding me to talk about Don Miller's dad's belief in his innocence. Yes. Uh, and this is the point where Don Miller's dad believed that Don was set up. Okay. He believes that that evidence was manufactured. Like they were looking for a reason to keep his son in there. Right. So um, I'll tell you why I don't believe that. And if, if you talk to anybody, they'll go, oh, yeah, well, we don't know that that whole deal. You right. Know, right. Um, I can tell you that uh, in every report I read and researched for my book, um, Don Miller never denied possessing that evidence, that garrote. He told the prison staff that that garrote was in fact simply uh, a waistband tie from an old winter coat and that he was saving it for something else. His dad, Gene, who I became friends with, and we talked extensively, was convinced that that was someone manufactured that in the prison staff and planted it. Right. And Don never denied it. Don states, it was, it was mine. It was from an old winter coat. Right. So I, I don't buy the, uh, the whole uh, planted evidence thing. I think that, um, I think that Gene wanted to see his son released from prison before he died. And he was holding on to that hope that, because every time we would talk, he would say, oh, there's a, there's a, a retired CEO that knows about it, but he's running scared, but he won't talk. He won't talk. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and of course, I didn't disagree with Gene. Um, right. I, I told him, you know, I'm going to write the book from the beginning to the end. Right. And right. That's what I did. And so Don was convicted of that. He got an additional 20 to 40 years in prison. Everybody thinks again at that point, hey, we don't have to worry about Don. He like got a sigh of, 40 years. Yeah, like a sigh of relief that, okay, he's not getting out. We have some more time. We're good. Right. So Don was never in prison for murder. Remember that? Yes. Yep. So Don gets parole hearings because in, in the prison system, you get a numerical value. And if you fall under... Uh, uh, some prison reform bills that were passed in 2018, instead of a parole hearing every five years, if you fall within a certain range, you get a parole hearing every year. Oh, wow. That's a, that's a huge difference. Right. So imagine you, ladies, imagine yourself as Lisa Gilbert, 
or Randy Gilbert having to relive everything that happened to you 40 some years ago every year. Yeah. Oh my That's God. So I couldn't beautiful. even, I, I don't think I could. I don't think I'd, I, cause I've never had like a near death experience. I've had friends who have, and you know, they still have that trauma, but to have to reopen those scars every single year, I'm sure that you can't, you probably don't sleep at night. You probably, you know, you can't live your life to the fullest because you're in the back of your mind. You're always thinking, okay, I have 365 days to figure out how to keep them in again. You know, right. The anxiety that they must feel every year never goes away because, you know, as the time gets closer, because obviously they hear about the day that he's going to have a parole hearing and stuff like that. So leading up to that, they're probably thinking, okay, is this going to be the time that he, you know, gets out or is this going to be you know, do I get another year of, you know, right. Relax. Well, not even relaxing, but they get another year to at least breathe. Yeah. Here's the deal is the, the parole board would have the interview and they might not make a decision for three to four months afterward. Okay. We're going to deny it. But in eight more months, he gets another one. Oh, wow. wow. Yeah. So it's just, it's absolutely crazy. And it threw the victims right to the side of the road. Oh, absolutely. Literally. Now, I'll jump back in into 1978 when this occurred. Um, Randy and back then there was no counseling really available. Yeah. Uh, or if there was, it was it was unheard of. Um, and so Randy and Lisa, at 13 and 14 years old, never discussed this with anybody. Oh ever. wow. They never discussed it with their parents. They never discussed it with each other. They never discussed it with their friends. When uh, they came back, we were finally able to get back in the house a month after this happened. Um, They said, okay, Randy, time to go to bed. He goes up to his bedroom. He says, I don't want to go in there. Look, your dad built this house for you. You're going in there. He goes in, there's blood still all over the carpet. Oh my gosh. Tried to slice his throat and stabbed him. So, so Randy and Lisa over the years have never, ever really talked about this. And I can say from, from personal experience, not talking about things really is just detrimental to your mental health. Because I, I, I grew up in a home where my mother, you know, was, the type of person who you deal with your stuff on your own. And that's that. And, and even now she does that. And it's, it's hard as an adult to try to relearn that. No, you have to talk to people. You have to let those people in. And so I understand, you know, holding on to that for so long eventually is just hard. Oh, it, I can't imagine. And And so when this book came out, when Killing Women came out, um, because I interviewed Randy for the book and um, we've become very, very good friends. And um, his sister doesn't live in the area anymore, uh, but she has come back for a couple um, short TV documentaries that we've done about the case. And she is all about talking about it now and keeping Don Miller in prison as long as they can. Oh, I'm it's sure. very therapeutic for both of them. 
Oh, I bet. And the one that you are talking about is um, I Survived a Serial Killer, correct? Yes. On A&E? Yes. yes. I I want to watch that episode. I haven't gotten to it yet, um, but I do. I did see it. Adam was telling me about it. And I love that. I love that TV series. I yes. really do. And, and we um, usually we do a series um, every first Sunday of the month. It's um, our Survivor Sundays. And if they are willing to speak with us, we would absolutely love to have them on that episode talking about their experience and stuff like that being survivors. Yeah, we actually we showcase only the survivors and how they were able to overcome or sadly, sometimes they don't always overcome. But yeah, we do it first Sunday every month. And I think it helps us as um, just like podcasters, because we get so invested in these certain cases that we kind of forget that like this happened in real life. Like someone suffered, someone went through this. And I think it's better for everybody to realize that these are real people. And I think it also helps too, because we, we find the light per se in such a dark area that there are people who have survived you know, these horrendous crimes and they go off and they, they do great things. Um, one of the women that we, um, spoke about it, she ended up going off. She's a nurse practitioner now. Yep. She's a nurse practitioner. The other ones, she goes out and she, you know, speaks about her troubles and stuff like that. And, you know, like, like she said, it's probably really great to, to have them and to talk about that. And then um, just kind of jumping back into the case, do you personally think that if Don successfully did commit the crime against Lisa and Randy, do you think he would have continued or by then was he just so manic that you think he he would have gotten caught no matter what? Well, he eventually would have gotten caught. But uh, the interesting thing is, is that that uh, Don has said um, in some letters to uh, the author that I spoke of earlier, uh, and this was years ago because that author has since passed away. Um, but he said, uh, a- as time went on, I took more chances. And so I absolutely will guarantee that Don would have gone on. Lisa would have been his fifth victim. Randy would have been his sixth. And he would have gone on. Uh, and he, I mean, he would have eventually got caught. But who knows how many more, more victims would have right. been out I, yeah, because by the time he got to Christine, that was in broad daylight. He did that absolutely. on a on a busy road. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and so, I did. I, I wanted to kind of touch on that um, because I I told you that I had found a website where you know some of these people talked about their experiences with him, and I'm going to read this one, and it says that. Um, I had worked in the prison that held Donnie Miller. Um, he was not a big guy. He had Coke bottle glasses, um, brown hair, and he pretended to find religion, carried a Bible around all the time. He used that to get his parole. But if you were around him, your hair would stand up. You could feel the craziness off of him. Most inmates didn't want to bunk with him and he had no friends. A guard that I worked with used to push his buttons and I was in the yard and watched him get angry. And he stated that when he was released, he start his killing process again. 
and I know that he has paroled. Um, so God help the community that he is in. So even inmates knew that it, he was, he was crazy. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Don described in the letter to me, uh, he described how, uh, how he, he, uh, the situation leading up to Mark Sue Young's murder. And, and I thought that the, that the letter would be uh, almost apologetic for the murder. And it, it basically uh, started out that I, I was in this uh, relationship. I was dating this young woman named Martha Sue Young. And uh, uh, she was my girlfriend. And she refused to talk about her problems. She refused to do this. She refused to do that. And I was like a steam pipe ready to blow. And, and basically it was, to me, it was as if he was saying, hey, it's her own fault. I killed her. Yeah. Yeah. Victim shaming. Yeah. Uh, and, and then he said, uh, the rest of the murders were copycats. Um, and I took the lives of three other women. Um, I would see someone and they were, they would remind me of, of, uh, Martha, and so I took the lives of three other women. Now, interestingly enough, in that letter, he never once mentions why he's in prison in the first place for raping Lisa Gilbert and trying to kill her and her brother Randy. Never mentions it huh. in that letter. He simply says, I took the lives of three other women and they were copycat murders. Now, I think it's a significant and I could be wrong, but I think it's significant that uh, he doesn't mention those because his, his reason for the murders is that they all look like Martha Sue. Yeah. But how does that reconcile with raping a 14-year-old girl and trying to kill her? Right. It doesn't. That's why he doesn't mention it. That's that. Yeah, I, I think that's very interesting, too. That's because he it's kind of like he he has an explanation for why he did this. And then I think maybe he was so manic when he did attack Lisa and Randy that he has no explanation for it. So that maybe, maybe then he just doesn't, you know, he doesn't want to acknowledge the fact that he basically lost control. I feel like many times when, when they do that and they, they continue killing, they get sloppy but that urge they can't get rid of that urge and so I feel like maybe it, he got to the point where he couldn't find anyone that looked like Martha Sue Young but he had to scratch that that itch per se you know he just he had to do it and yeah. she was the next person that was there sure absolutely absolutely so um Don Miller is uh well, I, I'll, I'll, I guess I'll kind of end it with this, and then you can ask me all the questions you want. But um, I interviewed uh, Martha's sister for the book, and she said, before, before I answer any questions, I want to ask you why you're writing this book. And no one had ever asked me that. And it kind of took me off guard, but it just it immediately popped into my head. People have forgotten who Don Miller is. Yes. People have forgotten what Don Miller did. And most importantly, people need to know that in May of 2031, 
serial killer Don Miller is going to be released from prison. Yes. Not on parole, not under supervision. He will be released from the Michigan Department of Corrections to walk among us again. Yes. And that's why I wrote the book, because people need to know that. They do. Yes, I, I 100% agree with that. I, I think that just to have that awareness will immediately, because I know that he will be older, but that doesn't mean, you know, we've had serial killers in the past. Like we talk about the, the toy box killer. Yes. He was killing people up into his mid to late sixties, you know, like it, age does not matter. And if he has this itch, like Gabe said, and even, you know, we've had these comments from inmates saying that this guy is crazy and he's going to do it again, just to have that awareness, I think will really, it it might save lives, you know? It certainly could. Uh, I know that uh, I got a letter from Don about two months ago and it was unsolicited. Um, And by that, I mean, I didn't write to him and say, hey, write me back. Um, I hadn't heard from Don in probably a year. And last year, uh, I was researching my next book, and uh, uh, I stopped and had lunch with his dad. And I bought his dad lunch. We had a nice conversation, and uh, and that was the last time I ever saw him. And, and Don wrote to me about two months ago, and he said, hey, I wanted to let you know my dad passed away, which was, you know, I was sad because I, I always enjoyed talking to Gene. Yeah. And um and he said, uh, my dad was disappointed in you uh, because uh, he thought you were going to give me a fair shake, that you weren't going to be like the rest of, of, of the people out there. And I thought, well, that's a little bit odd because Don's dad called me up after the book was published and I could tell he'd been crying. And he said, uh, uh, I'm having a hard time reading your book. And I said, I'm sure you are, Gene. And he said, uh, I didn't know half the stuff that you put in here. And I said, well, I'm sure you didn't, Gene. And he said, well, I just wanted to tell you, you did a good job. Oh. So. So you think Don was just trying to maybe like make you feel bad for the book? I think that's the case. I think that, that Don saw an ad. Well, I know he did. He saw an ad for the, the, um, short tv show we did uh world's most evil kill or i'm sorry uh i survived a serial killer and i think he saw that ad and he probably saw a clip of me and thought because his dad was always against doing any of the television stuff yeah right Um, and and i said well you know gene that's the way you sell books and and i'm gonna do it uh i said if you if you want to come on i said um they seem very fair. And I said, if they, if Don wanted to come on or perhaps I could be a voice for Don, you know, um, and nothing. So, uh, I think Don probably saw it and, and was, I don't know, spouting off or whatever, but yeah. Did he, did he know your relationship with his father? He did because, uh, uh, I had written to him and said, you know, um, well, his dad had talked to him first and convinced him to write me a letter. Okay. And uh, so it started off very, uh, believe it or not, very pleasant. Um, uh, I, I received a real short letter and said, hey, I'm going to write you a letter. Um, 
and I'll explain to you what was going on in the mid seventies. And I thought, well, I'll believe it when I see it. And then one day it arrived. And so I wrote him a thank you letter and I just said, Hey, thanks. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time. And um, I'm going to put this as a postscript in the book. And, and so he wrote back to me and he said, Oh, that's a, a good idea. It sounds very appropriate. And then I, I wrote back and I said, um, I just want to let you know that I think the world of your dad, he's very, very pleasant, very honorable man. And, and uh, I kind of watch out, or I feel like I got to watch out for him. And yeah. uh, he said, well, you're a man of honor. And, and so we kind of just exchanged short notes after that, that big letter. And then I got that last one and I thought, well, I'm not even going to respond to that. Yeah. So, yeah. Cause he was obviously just trying to to basically take a dig at you, I think, right. just yeah, because he I knew mean. his father was gone. So he just yeah. out of, I don't, I mean, who knows what's going on in his mind, but maybe out of just like, yeah, that's exactly it. nobody knows. Yeah. Nobody knows what goes on in Don Miller's mind. Okay. Well, I, you <laughs> answered so many questions, so many questions. Um, and again, you know, we just, we did this episode because like you said, people need to know who he is and what he has done because he's not in there for the crimes that he committed prior to, um, the Gilbert siblings, you know, right. he's exactly, he's, yeah, he's, he's done his time for all that. Yeah. Yes. So this is something that's incredibly important. Like you said, 2031, <laughs> that is not far away. Oh, nine years, you know, and he is going to be released. He's not going to have, you know, anything he is going to be just free and able to walk amongst us and that's a very scary feeling yes i agree yes but thank you we want to thank you rod you are so no wonder you're a great author you are so good at laying out the picture yes like you were just storytelling and i'm sitting there just imagining being in that that time and space and i just kept like it was amazing. I've never met someone who was so detailed in their storytelling. It like, we really, really do appreciate you coming on here. And I'm sure that our fans are absolutely going to love you. And of course, you know, if you do want to read Rod's book, killing women, it's on audible, it's on Amazon. It is on my list. I will get to it. I promise. Um, but I just, you are such a, a kind soul. So thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah. Well, thank, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, if I could just take one second oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. and, and let you know, I do have uh, two other books out. Um, my first is called To Hell I Must Go. It's about a vicious, vicious murder in 1897 that my great-great-grandfather investigated. It's a true story. And the second book is called uh, To Hell I Must, or I'm sorry, uh, A Slayer Waits. And that's about the brutal murder of an elderly couple in 1955 near Stockbridge. And I do have a fourth book uh, that is with my um, agent right now, uh, hopefully that will be out later this year, uh, that details a 60-year-old cold case. Oh, wow. I'm looking forward to I it. I am too. And we'll, we'll post those links on our page also to oh, be great. able to, to get to your book also. Yes. Perfect. And if, if you are willing, we would love to, you know, if we have a case and with your police background, maybe, you know, ask you a few questions so we can kind of, you know, get more detail or information on things. Cause yes. Sometimes you can Google them and sometimes you can't. So it would be nice <laughs> sure, to have, yeah. you know, as, as a second look at things. Um, so, but yeah, thank you so much. And we will talk to you boozers later. Yes.
Bye.